Okay. Well, uh, today uh, we are uh, in Romans 13 still. And uh, last week we... uh, Last week we were finishing up our study about civil authority in verses 1 through 7. And today we want to pick up with verse... Eight, and uh, we're only going to try to tackle three verses today, verses 8 through 10, verses about love. Uh, but uh, going back and looking at those first seven verses, particularly last week we looked at verses 3 through 7, having looked at the first two verses earlier. But what do you recall uh, some of the things that we talked about and thought about last week in those in those verses about civil government. Okay. And that kind of sticks in our throat sometimes, doesn't it? <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> to... Uh, to recognize that all authority is established by God. Sometimes we, so we're. Uh, <laughs> well, that's not the part that bothers me. Is that who he gives it to sometimes? Yeah. Probably your kids thought the same thing. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> really. If we're if we're doing what we're what is right. Shouldn't have to always be looking over our shoulders, should we? That's that's right. That's one of the things that Paul says is is that uh, if, if we just live out the Christian life, if we live out the the ethics and the values of the Christian life, that goes a long way into alleviating our apprehension about authority. Uh, it's uh, it's when we're always trying to kind of push the margins on what's right that we end up looking over our shoulders and wondering uh, wondering about uh, whether or not we have something to fear. And he comes on to say that there, there's more than just the wrath, so they can also do it for clear conscience before God. Okay. And that he did establish um, capital punishment because there is the wrath. Okay. 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 So he talks about having given the sword to civil authority, which is uh, which is a reference, of course, to the power of life and death. And so I think it's pretty clear that uh, that God did intend for civil authority to have the power of capital punishment. There's many people nowadays who object to it and. And, uh, and they have legitimate concerns about the misuse, the abuse of capital punishment. It's always, as historically, uh, has a record of, uh, of misuse and abuse and misapplication and mistakes made, of course. But that doesn't change the fact that the civil authorities need that power and God has given them that power in order to maintain the social order. What else? Why is it important? Uh, why is it important for us to have a testimony of ones who are uh, have a positive attitude or a positive dis- disposition towards civil authority? Why is that important? I'm not sure what you said on this the last week, but I, first thing up in my mind is the nature of man is to rebel against authority. Okay, okay, okay. That's certainly true. Yeah. It's, it doesn't really say that. In yeah, it's yeah. <laughs> but it's pretty well implied throughout Scripture. Yeah, it's a pretty safe statement. Yeah, yeah. So that if, if you do have to take a stand for moral issues, they don't say, oh, it's just him making another kid about government. If you've always complied before, then they see it as a yeah, yeah. If if our kind of default position is 
We're always griping about government, complaining about government, pushing against government, resisting government. Then when a real issue of conscience comes up where, we, where it really is necessary for us to take a stand, and we do, people will just look at it and go, well, that's just the way they are. They're just always, you know, they're always fighting government. So they're just, you know, it's just their disposition. If, on the other hand, we have Paul's attitude, which is an attitude, a positive attitude towards civil authority, a positive attitude towards government, and where we are, uh, we are, we we gladly submit because we understand that it is an authority from God, and and that's our default position, and that's how we're known, and that's how people see us. And then an issue of conscience comes up where we have to draw the line and say, no, I cannot do this, or I must do this, uh, regardless of what. Then the then the focus of the issue is the focus is not on us. The focus is much more on the issue. Because it's very clear that we're not the kind of a person who's just always, uh, always just kind of pushing against authority and resisting authority. So it actually serves to, to, to put the focus in people's minds on the issue that's at stake rather than on us. So that's a very important reason, I think, why we need to be known as men and women who have a positive attitude towards civil authority. Anything else from last week we talked about you want to mention? Yeah, Sarah? Being pastors is important and it's very much the same type of worship. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the, it's kind of a little difficult sometimes for us to accept that. And you just remember that uh, in the next few weeks when you sit down to write your, text, your t- uh, check to the IRS or to the Oklahoma Tax Commission or whoever, just remember that uh, that it's really it's really very similar to when you sit down to write your check to the church. When you sit down to write your uh, you write your check, you write your check to the church because you want to support the ministry that goes on here at Trinity. You want to you want to support those who are in the service in God's service here at Trinity. Uh, and and he says that that's exactly what these people are who are in civil government. They are God's ministers. And so there is a real sense in which I sent, when I sit down to write my check, I don't often feel this way, to be honest with you, but there is a real sense in which when I sit down to write my check to the government, it's an act of worship. It's an act of recognition of God and God's authority in my life and God's rule on my life. And, and, an, and it should be an act of gratitude that, uh, that there are these people who, as Paul says, who have devoted themselves to this purpose. You know, and we tend to get focused on people and on their wrong motives and on their incompetence that we may consider to be their incompetence in government. Uh, but uh, but that is not to be our that is not to be our what I've called throughout this throughout this study on civil government our default position. But our default position is that we recognize that their authority comes from God. Their authority is established by God. That they are God's ministers. And so we pay taxes for that reason. Now, that's not to say that that because we do live in a democracy, because we do live in a in an environment where we can have some say about how those tax monies are spent and where those tax monies go and how much should be paid in taxes. We have a voice in that. And, and I think it's incumbent upon us to exercise our civil responsibilities uh, to to speak on those issues. But when push comes to shove, when we pay our taxes, we are, in fact, supporting the ministers of God. So, got something to keep in mind, isn't it? Especially this time of year. <laughs> Anything else you want to mention? Okay, well, Paul transitions then, uh, beginning in verse 8. He transitions in, in, there in verse 7 that we looked at last week. He he. He uh, talks about rendering to all what is due to them, tax to whom tax, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, and honor to whom honor. And the point that we were making is that this issue of our relationship to uh, civil authority does not, does not involve simply the issue of submission and, and paying taxes, but it involves our attitude, our whole attitude towards them of honor and respect, etc. So, so Paul is addressing the whole idea of what we within within the society, within the community in which we live, these kind of broad 
obligations or responsibilities that we have and, and, and that we ought to comply with those things that we ought to that we ought to render or give to someone whatever is due to them. Okay? And that just kind of provides his transition then into into his next thought, which is the his next subject, which is the subject of loving your neighbor. Okay? And and he says uh, in verse eight, he says, "Oh, nothing to anyone except to love one another." So his um, so he's kind of carrying on this idea of what we owe to people. Okay, and the idea in verse seven is that there are things that we owe to people, and we are we have an obligation to uh, we have an obligation to pay that. We have an obligation to discharge that responsibility. The responsibility of paying taxes, the responsibility of honoring, the responsibility of respect, etc. We have an obligation to discharge that that uh, that thing that we owe. There is, however, he says, something which we can never completely discharge. Okay, and that's what the debt of love. The debt of love. Okay. We always are going to be obligated. We are always going to be indebted to people in the respect that we will always have an obligation to love people. He says, so he says, don't owe anything to anyone except love. Love is this kind of ongoing obligation we have. But let's stop first and think a little bit about what he says when he says, do not uh, uh, owe nothing to anyone. Okay. Uh, what? The question is, what is he saying there? What is he suggesting there? I would suppose that there are probably some of us here in the room that are carrying in our billfolds credit cards, okay? And uh, we may have a we may have a loan on the car that we're driving. You probably most of us, or some of us at least, probably have a mortgage on the house we're living in, okay? So the question is: Is Paul is this is this comment here of Paul's? Is this remark here of Paul's? Is this a prohibition on borrowing money? He says, owe nothing to anyone. Is this, a, is this kind of a blanket prohibition on, on uh, any kind of borrowing money? And there are some people who think that that's the point that Paul is making there. And, uh, and we need to stop and ask ourselves that question. Uh, somebody's laughing over here. <laughs> you agree with that. Okay, okay. Uh, so, so that we have at least one person in the class here who believes that. Okay. You're talking about oh, on KPCV? Yeah. Uh, okay. Well, I actually listen. I actually listen quite often to uh, Dave Ramsey on. Uh, on the, yeah, but. Yeah. Yeah. Sound financial. Yeah, yeah. Well, the question is, is that what the passage is teaching? And I would suggest that it is not. Okay, and and the reason I just and and that's not to say we'll and we'll talk about this a little bit. Although this is off subject of love, we need to address this question because it comes up in this verse. Uh, I would suggest to you that it is not a blanket prohibition on all borrowing. Okay. And there's, uh, I have several reasons why I think that. One is because there are several places in Scripture where the Scripture gives uh, very careful instructions on the conditions under which we are to lend money. Okay, so for example, under the Old Testament law, there are specific instructions that are given in the law on when you lend and what you do. And when you lended, when you lent money to a fellow Jew, which implied that another Jew would be borrowing money from you, when you lent money to another Jew, you were prohibited from doing it at interest. Okay, uh, and uh, that comes up several times actually in the Old Testament. Uh, but but the, there's so. I don't want to get too far off track here. The point is that there are instructions on lending money, which would imply that that the idea of borrowing money is not completely prohibited, because if it were completely prohibited, if it were a sin to borrow money, then, of course, I would be aiding in betting sin if I were to lend money to somebody. So, uh, so I think the instructions on 
lending money imply that, that borrowing money is not always wrong, okay? Uh, uh, as I read through the commentaries on this verse, I, I didn't find any commentary who thought that the verse taught that this is a strict prohibition on borrowing money. Uh, most of the commentators that I read that actually addressed the subject thought that the issue was that if you have a financial obligation, whatever that obligation is, you are responsible to discharge it. You're responsible to pay your debts, okay, if you have them. But uh, so I don't think that this verse is, is strictly speaking a blanket prohibition on borrowing money, but rather is a, a requirement that's upon us to, to meet our obligations and our responsibilities. I think that's the gist of the passage. Now, uh, we could, of course, diverse, di uh, diverge here from the subject, which is ultimately love, and we'll get to that in just a minute. We could diverge from that and spend the whole hour talking about borrowing and lending and finances and all that sort of thing. And, uh, and I think that would probably be a mistake for us to do. Uh, probably for one reason, I'm probably not the person to do that. Okay, I'm not a financial advisor or financial expert or that sort of thing. Uh, as I said, I listen to Dave Ramsey uh, actually quite a bit. I uh, turn him on when I get tired of listening to sports radio or whatever. I turned off the conservative talk uh, shows a long time ago. Okay, and uh, so I listen to the radio though when I'm working, and so a lot of times I'll have. Dave Ramsey on, and I appreciate a great deal of, uh, I'm kind of a fan of his, I, I enjoy listening to him, I enjoy uh, the way he emphasizes uh, getting out of debt and staying out of debt and how he, how he encourages people to do that and tells them, shows them how they can do that, okay, uh, and, uh, and it's interesting to watch him take people in different financial situations, some people who are very what we would think of as very wealthy, but who are deeply in debt and how they should get out of debt and other people who have uh, minimal income and how what they can do to get. So it's always fun to listen to him and it's always encouraging to hear the people who come on his show and say, you know, five or six years ago we owed $50,000 or $100,000 or $150,000 and now we are debt free. That's always encouraging to listen to. And I think Scripture does have a lot to say about the peril that is involved in debt. And in our society, in our culture, we just so, we're just so accustomed to the idea of everybody just being burdened down, particularly with consumer debt. Uh, so, and it's one of the things that kind of drives our economy is the whole thing about just go out and borrow it, whether, you got the, whether or not you've got the resources to pay it back. I think... Certainly, the passage does imply that if we ever do borrow money, we do so in a very responsible way with a full intention and awareness of what we can do and how we're going to go about meeting or discharging this obligation that we have. Okay, So that we never find ourselves in a position where we are owing somebody something that we can't pay back. Well, as I said, that's really not Paul's subject here. Paul's point here is that we have an ongoing debt and obligation to others. Uh, he uses the term here, one another, which typically we often think when he's using that term or when it's used in Scripture that it's referring to within the context or fellowship of believers. But he says some other things. He uses some other words here. He talks about, uh, it's translated our neighbor here, which is really a word for just others in the Greek. Uh, implies that he's really thinking beyond just the scope of the community of believers. He's talking about about all other people. Okay, so our obligation we we have an obligation or we have an ongoing debt of love to all those that we rub shoulders with, whether or not they are believers or unbelievers. Okay, so. So we have this ongoing debt of love. So there's never a point at which I can say, you know, well, this person, you know, I, I've loved this person enough. And so I don't need to love them anymore. I've, you know, I've sacrificed and I've, and I've done what I can do and, and I'm tired of trying to love them. And so I'm just going to write them off. Well, that's never an option for us. Now, that doesn't 
mean that there aren't limits to what we are able to do for people. Clearly, there are limits. Uh, but there's never a point at which we stop, we can stop loving one another. And he says the reason for that, there in verse uh, 8, he says the reason for that, he says, because the person who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. So Paul is building here on a theme that actually was very prevalent in Jesus' teaching, this association of the idea of, or the connection between love and the law. And he says, he says, the person who is loving his neighbor is fulfilling the law. Okay, well, and then, he, and then he kind of harps on that. And he, in the next verse, he says, he says for, for this, he says, you shall not, uh, what, you shall not uh, commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. If there's any other commandment, he says, it is summed up in this, that you shall love your neighbor in this statement, or this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then again, he goes on in the next verse and tells us how, how loving is the fulfillment of the law. Well, that creates kind of a problem for me, right? Because this is coming in Romans, right? <laughs> this is in the book of Romans. We're talking about fulfilling the law and our obligation to fulfill the law. Now, why is that a problem, reading that in the book of Romans? Pardon? Well, pardon? Yeah, yeah, he's told us, he's already told us, he said that we're free from law. Remember back in chapters... Chapters 6 and 7 and 8, he keeps telling us how we died to the law, we're freed from the law, etc., etc., etc. And now we get to chapter 13 and he says, well, now, you know, we want, to, we want to be careful here to fulfill the law by love. Okay, so are we free from the law or are we not free from the law? Jesus fulfilled the law for us. He took our penalty. Okay, so that means I have no responsibility or obligation to obey the law? But he's already fulfilled the law for me. So, if he's done it for me, why do I have to do it? Well, he did say this was the greatest or second greatest commandment. Okay, okay. Okay, okay. So, whatever it means that Jesus has fulfilled the law for us, it does not mean that he's absolved us of our responsibility to live righteously. Sarah, you have a comment? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. The sense in which we are free from the law is we are free from the law as a means of attaining righteousness before God. We are free from the law. We're free from the curse of the law. You know, the, what does the law do? The law incites us to sin. We talked all about that as we were going through earlier in Romans. And that brings down upon us the curse of the law. In the death of Christ, I am free from the curse of the law. That, that, uh, that effect of the law to incite me to rebel against God has been terminated. It no longer does that to me. Uh, nor am I any longer under the curse of the law. So, so that when I do fail, when I do sin, it doesn't bring the wrath of God down on me. Okay, So I am, in that sense, free from the law. But there is nothing anywhere in Scripture, in any of Paul's writing or anywhere else in Scripture, that implies that because I am now in, under grace, that I have no obligation or responsibility to live righteously. And that righteousness, that, that practical righteousness, living righteously, is defined and explained to us in the law. We talked about 
uh, a few weeks ago, we talked about uh, the do lists in the Bible, and we were looking at one uh, there earlier here in Romans. We were looking at uh, some of God's do lists for us. So he does give us a list of things that define for us what it means to live righteously. Okay, And we are not, because we are under grace, we are not just free of any responsibility to live that way. I have an obligation. I have a responsibility to, to behave in certain ways. Not to commit adultery. Not to steal. Not to murder. Not to covet. Uh, to honor my parents. Etc. 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 And the many other commandments that we get in the New Testament. So, uh, so I still have that obligation and that responsibility. But what's really cool about the teachings of Jesus... And the thing that Paul is saying here is how he simplifies it for us. He just cuts to the chase. Because sometimes what our approach to, to living righteously is, is, is making a list. You know? So in our minds, we have this, this kind of list of do's and don'ts. And you've got to do this and do this and do this and do this. And you don't do this and you don't do this and you don't do And we have this kind of, and the list becomes burdensome to us. Because we've got to think about all these do's and don'ts. Okay. Well, Jesus just cuts to the chase. Actually, it wasn't original with Jesus because it comes from the law itself. The statement that Paul quotes there in verse 10, where he says in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. It actually comes originally from Leviticus. So it actually first, it's actually this summation of the law actually comes from the law itself. So in the book of Leviticus, which is the book of laws, gives all kinds of laws and commandments and instructions. In, the very, in that very book, it's summed up for us in this statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Okay. So, so what Jesus has done for us is he's kind of cut through all this confusion of the list of do's and don'ts. And he just says, now this is the way you need to think. And if you think this way, and if you live this way, you will find yourself obeying the law. And that way you think is just love your neighbor like you love yourself. And if you love your neighbor like you love yourself, you will fulfill the law. Is that definition of, of neighbor, in this case, the same definition of neighbor in the Good Samaritan story? Yes, I think it's the same word. I believe it's the same word there. Yeah. yeah. And so the Good Samaritan, as I was preparing this lesson, I was thinking about that story. It's a great example. Jesus says, to the guy, you know, the guy asked him, who is my neighbor? And he, and he responds with the story of the Good Samaritan. And he's saying, which one of these people acted like a neighbor to this poor guy who was bludgeoned along the road there? Okay. And, uh, and, uh, uh, and then, of course, we have uh, Jesus' other uh, explanation of this uh, when, he, when he says, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Okay. That's the same, that's the same principle, isn't it? That we love, uh, uh, that we are to love others as we love ourselves. We are to do unto others as we would have them do unto us. It's all the same idea. Okay, the idea is that the foundation or the basis of Christian ethics is love, and that just kind of simplifies it down for us. Now, it doesn't make it simplifies it make it easy, right? Okay, there's a difference between simple and being easy. All right. And so it simplifies it. It doesn't make it easy for us, but it does simplify it as we try and think through what are my obligations and what are my responsibilities to you? And what are your obligations and responsibilities to me? Well, you're never going to be in a place where you don't owe me love. And I'll never be in a place where I don't owe you love. So I must always be about discharging that responsibility. Now, Paul doesn't address this issue that I'm about to bring up. But unfortunately, a lot of people think he does. So we're going to have to stop and we're going to have to talk about it. Okay. When Paul says here, he's quoting, of course, from Jesus and from Moses. When Paul says here, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. How is that oftentimes spun to us by Christian teachers? 
Okay? <laughs> they kind of miss the whole love others and they just focus on loving yourself. Okay? And, and, and the thought that's sometimes, oftentimes, way too often taken from the passage is you have to learn to love yourself before you can love others. And so they read this verse and they think that what Paul is saying and what Moses is saying and what Jesus is saying is you need to deal with your low self-esteem. You need to learn to love yourself and then if you love yourself, then you'll love other people. Well, that doesn't work. Well, yeah, it doesn't work. And we're going to talk about that for a minute because that is a very common misunderstanding. Very common misunderstanding. I don't know how many times I've heard it in Christian churches and in Christian contexts taught. And, and, and Jesus is not saying that at all. When, when Moses says and Jesus says and Paul says, love your neighbor as you love yourself, there is an assumption. And there's the, the assumption is you do love yourself. It's a given. Everybody does. Everybody loves themselves. That's a given. So, in my relationship with others, when I'm trying to figure out how do I treat other people, the question I ask is how would I treat myself? How, how do I want to be treated? And so, Jesus says it that way. He says, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Okay? And he knows that we all have a preference for the way we want to be treated. And the reason is, is because we love ourselves. It's just built into us. Now, some of it is sinful love and some of it is the way God made us. Okay, but we all love ourselves. It is a given and it becomes the minimum standard then by which I measure whether or not I'm loving others. So, so what do we do with this whole thing? You know, is it really true that we all love ourselves? Because we, we all have heard, at least, that there's this big problem out there of low self-esteem. In fact, some of us here in the room may be walking around with a problem of low self-esteem. Well, I have a problem with people who read this verse and... And, and read it as an answer to the low self-esteem problem. I also have a problem with people who read this verse and dismiss the idea of low self-esteem as being an invalid issue. You see, when it comes to low self-esteem, I think there is a warranted low self-esteem. Okay? I think there are some ways in which we need to think lowly of ourselves. Okay, right? So, for example, I'm finite. God made me finite. I'm not infinite. Okay, so I, I have some built-in limitations. And if I don't acknowledge those, if I don't recognize those built-in limitations, that's arrogance. Right? That's pride. Right? So, if I don't recognize those built-in limitations just because I'm a human being, okay, I'm not God. So, I can't do the things that God can do. So, I need to have a, a, a view of myself that recognizes that I am finite and I have built-in limitations that God built into me. Okay, I just need to recognize that. Now, that's warranted low self-esteem. Similarly, I'm a sinner. I'm in rebellion against God. Okay. I've shaken my fist at God and I said, no, God. Okay. And so I need to recognize, as the old hymn used to say before all the low self-esteem people changed the hymn, what a worm am I? Because I am. I like that. What is the hymn now? I forget the hymn. But the line in there about... How he, he died for uh, for a worm such as I, and yeah, now it's changed to such a one as I, or to sinners such as I. But we don't like that word worm. Well, I like that word worm because because in my sinful, rebellious state, that's what I am. I'm just a worm. Okay. 
Yeah, at the cross, at the cross. Yeah, yeah. I have to argue at this point because Scripture definitely teaches that we are no longer worms. So we have to, and you're probably going there eventually. Yeah, give me time. Give me time. <laughs> but, but even as a believer, even as a believer, I come to points in my life and I go, I am such a scoundrel. Yeah, so oftentimes, even as a believer, I just turn my back on God and I just, you know, and I, and I refuse to believe what he says or I refuse to do as he says or whatever. Okay. So, so, so go ahead. The more I've matured as a Christian, I think the easier it is for me to identify with the one. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think it... I know where Jim and you are going. Yeah. I, I didn't get to go there. I was going to go. Yeah. But, but, yeah, <laughs> that's right. So, so I'm, a, so I'm finite and I'm a sinner. And not only am I finite and I'm a sinner, but you put those two things together and I'm just, I'm, I live in a fallen world and I am a fallen person. So even though I have some built-in limitations, because I am fallen, I have additional limitations that weren't built into me in creation, right? Okay. And I think I need to honestly recognize these facts. That's a, that's a recognition of what I am as a person. Okay. No, I haven't talked about redemption and that sort of thing, but that's a recognition and that's a warranted low self-esteem. Okay. But then there's also an unwarranted low self-esteem. Okay? And some of us struggle with this. And if you don't struggle with it, you probably know some people who really struggle with unwarranted low self-esteem. And unwarranted low self-esteem can come from any number of sources, but oftentimes it comes from what other people have said to us. Maybe when you were growing up, as you were growing up, maybe you're... Uh, maybe you had a father or a mother who was was pretty hard on you and, and used to tell you how worthless you were and and uh, and and you're just useless and you're worthless and you're you know, and and so they just built this mentality into you that you are a worthless person. Well, there's no such thing as a worthless person. You know how I know? Because Christ died. for the world. Christ died for sinners. And I was worth, and you were worth, the blood of God incarnate. There was something in you that He wanted. Furthermore, we are all made in the likeness of God. So we're all significant. The most rebellious, recalcitrant, obnoxious sinner is significant in the eyes of God. So the decisions that I make and the things that I do take on significance because I am made in the likeness of God. And I am one for whom Christ has shed his blood. So so I am worth something to Him. I'm not worth something to Him because I am righteous in myself, but I am worth something to Him because He has created me and has designed me for Himself. And in my redeemed condition, I can fulfill that purpose. Okay. So, so when people have this idea of being worthless or this idea of being insignificant, or even I would suggest the idea of incompetence. Some of us feel like we're just incompetent. You know, we just, you know, and we all struggle with incompetence. Well, we're all incompetent in some ways. That's, a, that's a, probably a warranted self-esteem. You probably don't want me doing brain surgery on you, okay? Uh, that would not be a pretty picture, okay? You probably don't want me keeping your books for you, okay? That also would not be a pretty picture. There are some things I'm not good at, okay? We're all not good at most things. But we all are gifted in some area. 
So while it is true that I may not be competent in the area you want me to be competent in, that does not mean that I am incompetent. God has created me with certain abilities and gifts, etc. And then when I got saved, I got spiritual gifts and spiritual abilities, etc., etc. And so, so there is that unwarranted self-esteem that says, I am worthless, I am insignificant, I am incompetent. Now, the person who buys into that line of thinking is actually a proud person. Low self-esteem is a version of pride. Unwanted low self-esteem is a version of pride. Because it's a preoccupation with self. You see, true humility is not thinking low or dirty thoughts about myself. True humility is just not thinking about myself. That's humility. We look at the humility of Christ. Who did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but humbled himself and became a servant. So he wasn't so preoccupied with what he was and that all of us recognize what he was. He was preoccupied with loving us and serving us and saving us. So humility is not thinking low thoughts. If I can just go around and think, well, if I just go around and think about what a dirty scum I am and how incompetent I am and how worthless I am and how insignificant, then I'll be humble. No, because what you are is you're just preoccupied with yourself. And that's pride. There you go. There you go. You've got it nailed there. Now that I've got humility done, I'm going to work on some other things. Yeah, right. Okay. So, so, so we just need to set aside this whole idea that the person who is who has low, unwarranted low self-esteem somehow needs to get their self-esteem together before they can love others. They already love themselves. That's why they have low self-esteem. You see, the person with unwarranted low self-esteem wouldn't care about it if they didn't love themselves. Did that make sense? Well, it goes back, you know, I've gotten a lot of arguments with people, I guess, but, you know, the person says, I hate myself. What they're really saying is, I hate my life the way it is because I love myself so much. Exactly. I don't like my life. That's exactly right. It's a self-absorbed statement. That's right, yeah. It's that they are disappointed that they are not what they wish they were. Okay, now, that means that whether you've got low self-esteem or not, you have no excuse not to love your neighbor as yourself. Because everybody loves himself, even the person with low self-esteem. So, let's just think about it this way. Say I have low self-esteem. But I recognize that, according to Paul here, whether I've got unwarranted low self-esteem or not, that I have an obligation to love others. That means I have an obligation, as Jesus says, to do unto others as I would have them do unto me. Now, if I have low self-esteem, what do I want people to do to me? Build me up. Encourage me. Tell, Tell me that that I'm significant to God, that God cares about me, that He loves me, etc., etc., etc. That's what I want. That's what I need. If I love others, if I would do unto others as I would that they would do unto me, then maybe our people with low self-esteem could be some of the greatest people in encouraging and building up others. Because they'd go, you know, that's what I need to hear. So that's what they need to hear. So I'm going to tell them that. Because I'm going to love them. And that's what love is. Rick, I think the biggest issue, I don't think you can even have right self-esteem until you realize like you're the worm. Because once you realize that if I'm like this and God loves me, it's like your self-esteem just goes off off the chart. I mean, that's yes. kind of the proper self-esteem yeah. that yes. nobody can destroy. Yes. No matter how they tear you down or anything, I mean, God loved me. God died for me. Yeah. 
I've got to be important. God dwells in me. I have to be important. And I was nothing before that happened. Yeah. Therefore, I, it's not on me. It's, it's the only, my only work is because God himself or something. Yes. Yes. And that's the ultimate work. It is the ultimate work. And nothing else matters. Nothing yeah. else matters. Yeah. Great point. Great point. So, so then Paul says that, and, and, and we're kind of sidetracked a little bit there, but you see how it all relates, and, and I wanted to address this issue because people really do some really dumb stuff with that verse. Okay. But then he goes on and he says, uh, he says, uh, he says uh, these statements, uh, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. If there's any other commandment, he says it's summed up in this. So all these commandments, if you think about it, just a matter of love. Now, it's kind of interesting that when people think about committing adultery, they, they, you know, the, the excuse they give for committing adultery is what? I love the person. Or I don't love the other person. Yeah, right. Okay. That's the excuse. They use. But what Paul says is no. The commandment, you shall not commit adultery. If you, if you keep that commandment, that's an act of love. You know, there's several people you're loving there. One is you're, you're loving the person that you would have committed adultery in because you're not dragging them down into sin. You're loving their spouse who, to whom they are covenanted. To whom you're loving that person. You're, you're loving the children in that relationship. There's all kinds of people you are loving when you refuse to commit adultery. Okay? So... Uh, and and the same with murder. Of course, it becomes pretty clear. It's not a very loving thing to kill somebody. You know? So it becomes pretty clear that to not murder somebody is loving. Uh, to not steal their possessions, that's loving. To not covet. That's kind of interesting. It's kind of interesting that he throws covetousness in there. Because covetousness is to desire or to long after something that belongs to another person. And when I think about that, I think that's kind of a creepy thing, you know it would really creep me out if I knew my neighbor was coveting something I had. <laughs> you know, that would that would make me make me paranoid. What to do? You know, because then I wonder how long how long is going to be before they go to the next step, which of course is to take it. You know, but but so so it's a loving thing for me not to look at the things which my neighbor has and want them for myself. It's a loving thing to do. So then the question comes up, because in the next verse he says, he who does no wrong to his neighbor fulfills the law. And the question comes up, well, does that mean that love is just a matter of not doing things? Is, it just, is, 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 is love just an issue of prohibitions? I can't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. Because typically when we think of love, we think of a positive thing, right? We think of doing something, okay? So is it a... Is it a matter, is love just a matter of not doing things or is it a matter of also doing, doing things positively, some things we, we, we do? Okay. Well, we have to remember that in the context, Paul, is, Paul has been referring to several of the commands, four of the six commands in what we call the second tablet of the Decalogue. The Decalogue is the Ten Commandments. It's broken down into... Uh, two what we consider to be two tablets the initial four have to do with our relationship with God and the last six have to do with our relationship with mankind it's called the second tablet of the Decalogue okay and so Paul is quoting here from the second tablet of the Decalogue and he mentions four of the six commandments in the, in the Decalogue okay so uh, so in the context Paul has just been listing some prohibitions do not murder, do not commit adultery, etc., etc. So in that context, he's simply saying, if we don't do those things, that is fulfilling the law, okay? But if we are loving our neighbor, we won't do those things. If I love my neighbor, I won't commit adultery. If I love my neighbor, I won't murder him. If I love my neighbor, I won't covet the things that they have. I won't do those things because I am loving them. That is fulfilling the law. So in the context, he's been talking about some negative things. But that does not mean that the love is, the love is not also not positive. Because, for example, uh, uh, in, for example, James and John writing in 1 John, 
James tells us, he says, you know, if you're if someone comes to your door and they're hungry or whatever, and, and you say to them, go away and be filled and you don't give them anything, you've not loved them. You've sinned. You've failed them. OK, so in that case, the failure to do something good is a violation of the law. Okay, or as, as John says, he says to know the right thing to do and not to do it is sin. In First John three, I think it is. Okay, so so love is both positive and negative. Love is refusing to do those things which do harm to a neighbor, but it also involves doing those things which build up, which meet the need. Of a neighbor. So, as I consider my neighbor, and I ask my, I consider the condition my neighbor is in, and I ask myself, if I were in that condition, Jesus says, what would I want them to do for me? So, if I were the guy that was beat up along the side of the road in the parable of the Good Samaritan, what would I want somebody to do to me? Would I want somebody to do to me what the Pharisee did, or what the publican did, or? Yeah. Uh, not publican, a Pharisee and a scribe, I guess it was, wasn't it? Pharisee and a scribe. Is that what I would want somebody to do for me if I were in that condition? Well, no. I would want somebody to do to me what the Samaritan did for me. So, the measure, the minimum measure of what is loving in my, rea- my relationship with somebody else is what do I want them to do if I were in their place? And if I do that, then I will be fulfilling the law. And it just simplifies everything, doesn't it? Instead of having to have a catalog of all the do's and don'ts. I remember uh, many years ago, I've told this story before several times, but many years ago, I... uh, 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 I had a, 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 several fellows that I was discipling. And one guy I was discipling was a very fervent, passionate guy, loved the Lord. And, and he was telling me one day, he says, you know what I decided to do? I said, what's that? He said, I decided I'm going to go through the New Testament. I'm going to list every single commandment in the New Testament so that I can keep them. And I said, I don't think you should do that. I don't think you should do that. That's not because I didn't think he shouldn't be aware of those commandments or that he shouldn't keep them. But it's just, that's the hard way to do it, folks. (laughs) That becomes so that I have to get up every morning and go through my checklist. And I don't, you know, maybe you're into that kind of minutia, but I'm not. I I can't live that way. But it is a very simple thing for me to live as Jesus told me to live. Which is, when I'm in this situation, what would I want somebody to do for me? And then do that for them. And if I do that, I have fulfilled the law. Okay? Next week we'll go on.